Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm your host as always, Stan McCune, realtor here in Greenville, and you can find all of my contact information in the show notes if you need to reach out to me for any of your real estate needs. I'm your guy. And please, reminder as always, please like, review, comment, subscribe, any of those things, whatever platform you're using, at the very least, you can subscribe to the show, and that helps. If you can download episodes, that helps get the show out to more people. If you can, if you have a platform where you can like or leave a rating or leave a review or whatever the case may be, all of those things would uh, be would make me grateful, okay? Because I don't get anything from the show except for other potential uh, real estate clients that might come to me through this show. And so getting this show out to as many people as possible, I would really appreciate that. So thank you guys uh, for those of you that have already done that. And for those of you that are going to do that now that I've mentioned it, I really appreciate it. Um, I am uh, standing at the moment in, in case uh, you're one of those that like to watch these episodes on YouTube. Um, I have, uh, I'm usually in a sitting position when I'm recording, but I feel some energy at the moment. I'm feeling like standing, so if the angle and whatnot of the video is different, it is. It is, in fact, different uh, because I'm standing versus sitting. Uh, but I just wanted to, to clarify that for those of you that are curious uh, about those types of things. Uh, today, I want to talk about something that I don't really want to talk about, to be completely honest, but I feel like I need to. I feel like this is something that needs to be addressed, and that's the fact that there are currently several class action lawsuits dealing with real estate commissions that are happening as we speak. And probably a good number of you have seen at least something on the news about these uh, about these class action lawsuits because a major one known as the Sitzer Burnett case recently went to trial and the jury in, I believe, just three hours, which is insane to me, ruled in favor of the prosecution that the National Association of Realtors and several large brokerages engaged in anti-competitive behavior conspiring to inflate realtor commissions, okay? So that is all the the that realtors right now are talking about uh, when they're not talking about the market itself. They're talking about these lawsuits, specifically Sitzer Burnett, because this lawsuit has been in the works for a while, but nobody up until the past few months thought that uh, that the National Association of Realtors had any shot at losing it for a variety of reasons. Um, but the reality is that they did lose. And now we need to talk about what this means, what exactly uh, is happening in the real estate industry, what are going to be the aftershocks. Um, now, the nitty gritty of the, uh, the prosecution's argument is that sellers, when selling real estate, have to use a realtor, which I personally disagree with. I see for sale by owner transactions. I've helped a lot of buyer clients with for sale by owner transactions over the years. Nonetheless, um, the argument is that sellers must use a realtor when selling a home, and that when using a realtor, they have no choice but to also pay a commission to a buyer's agent, and that the commission amounts have been fixed by the National Association of Realtors and these large brokerages that were named in the Sitzer Burnett suit. And now more since that suit uh, happened, um, now there's more lawsuits now targeting other brokerages and other organizations. And this is just going to keep going because once one class action lawsuit wins, 
uh, a bunch of other class action lawsuits follow. Um, now, as I already kind of alluded to, um, I assume that for the purposes of this show that most, if not all of my listeners have heard at least something about this case. So I'm not going to get into any more nitty gritty about the details of the case than I already have. Um, but I do want to give my two cents on it because if you're wondering what I think about it, as many of you uh, frequently will text or email me saying, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I figure there's probably a few people that uh, that listen to the show or that watch the show that want to know what I think about this lawsuit and the lawsuits in general. And so that is why I want to talk about this uh, because I figure that it's going to be interesting content for some of you. Now, let me start by saying that the idea that large brokerages are conspiring together, particularly with the National Association of Realtors, um, from my point of view, this is completely asinine. Now, let me clarify. I always have to do this. I'm not an attorney, so this is not a legal opinion, obviously. Um, and it's also not legal advice in any way. I do not give legal advice. That's a felony uh, for me to do that because I am not a lawyer. So uh, so don't understand anything that I'm saying here as forming any sort of legal opinion or representing other legal opinions. Uh, these are just my own personal non-legal opinions. Um, and there's no legal advice in here. Um, but with all of that out of the way, I just want to clarify something about these, these big brokerages conspiring with each other. The big companies like Keller Williams, Remax, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Allen Tate, go down the list, they despise each other. They hate each other. They're not getting together, going to conferences together, having coffee together, and figuring out how to inflate commissions. They do not talk to each other. It doesn't happen. I, I, I'm telling you right now, they are not conspiring. Like, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to use that type of language. Now, were they uh, engaging in anti-competitive behavior? Maybe. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer. I can't really answer that question. But from me as a realtor, from the outside looking in, to think about it as a conspiracy seems absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I think it's important to to also understand that a big company like Keller Williams, which was one of the main companies named in, in Sitzer Burnett, um, Keller Williams is really just an umbrella over a lot of smaller brokerages. For instance, in Greenville, we have multiple Keller Williams offices, and they're they're essentially independent, right? They they are under different brokers. Um, they are not working together. If you're an agent with one Keller Williams office, you're not an agent with all Keller Williams offices. That's just not how these brokerages work. And Gary Keller, uh, the the famous person who uh, is on the Keller Williams name, um, who's very influential in the uh, real estate industry as a whole. He isn't controlling what the local Keller Williams offices are doing. That is not how real estate works. They, um, the various offices, they operate independently. Um, and even the offices that are under the same umbrella, so like, for instance, multiple Keller Williams offices, um, even though they have a friendly relationship with each other for the most part, they are also in competition with each other. So even if you get sometimes multiple offices that are under the same umbrella, multiple Keller Williams or multiple Allen Tate offices or whatever the case may be, uh, they might not have great opinions about each other. They might be friendly, they might not. So for real estate companies to be truly conspiring, 
right? This would have to be something happening across the country. You would need brokerages from all 50 states getting together and discussing these things, strategizing, trying to f- figure out how to how to keep commissions high. And that's not happening because the local brokerages don't even talk to each other, let alone the national brands. Again, they hate each other. This is not a friendly competition between brokerages. I don't know if people like fully understand that. Now, we as realtors, when when we are dealing with other realtors, we don't hate those realtors. We don't hate their brokerages. That's that's where it breaks down, and, and so people don't understand that. But at the brokerage level, um, it is not particularly friendly. Uh, the dynamics are are just different when you get up to that level. Because why? They're competing. They're competing for agents. That's what brokerages are doing. They're trying to get as many agents as they can. And so these other brokerages are saying, uh, you know, hey, we have the greatest education, the greatest technology, all these different things. And uh, that may or may not be true. But that irritates, obviously, if you're a competing broker, that irritates you to hear, well, this other broker is just saying all of these things. I can say all of those things too, um, and I want to recruit as many agents as possible, right? If I'm a broker, which I'm not, I'm just a realtor. Um, but uh, again, they they are all competing against each other in that way, and it's not really a friendly competition. Um, so that's that's one thing context-wise that I think is important that I don't think that the general public like fully understands. I definitely don't think the jury understood it um, because I. And again, I didn't read through the case, but I have a hunch that the the, the National Association of Realtors did not make that argument uh, because the the NAR, you know, they want to think that it's a friendly competition. They don't want to to give out this uh, this impression that it's it's cutthroat between these brokerages. But the reality is that it, it, it quite frankly is cut cutthroat between the brokerages, and perhaps NAR should have uh, should have portrayed that. So. Then the fair question is, and I heard I heard someone ask this recently on a uh, on a uh, different podcast um, where they were discussing this case. Why have commission structures stayed the same for so long? Why has it been a general rule, really for decades now, that when you sell a house, you pay a roughly six percent commission, give or take, sometimes a little bit higher, sometimes a little bit lower, but six percent has kind of been the benchmark. And I think a history lesson is in order here, okay? Real estate sales as a profession, the way I understand it, in the U.S., it started on Wall Street, okay? As a lot of things uh, when it comes to sales. Agents, not realtors, they didn't have realtors back then. They were just agents, real estate agents, would help people sell real estate by the seller essentially telling them what they wanted to sell for, and the agent would simply try to get more than that. And any more that the agent got uh, was essentially his commission. So for instance, if someone wanted to sell uh, their house for $500,000 um, and the agent was able to sell it for $550,000, the agent pocketed the extra $50,000, right? And the seller just got what they were asking for, which was five hundred. If that sounds familiar, it's because that is exactly what real estate wholesalers who are not realtors, that's what they do today. It's essentially the exact same system, except their process involves assigning a contract to another buyer, and then they get the difference between those two contracts, which is their finder's fee. But otherwise, it's basically the exact same thing that wholesalers do today. But the system changed for agents, and uh, later when when the idea of a 
realtor, a professional standard for real estate agents came about. Um, they changed the system to a percent system to protect consumers from predatory agent practices. Let me say that one more time. We have a percent commission system now to benefit buyers and sellers, not agents. Trust me, I could make a lot more money if this was not a percent system. If this was similar to the old days of real estate where someone just told me, hey, I just need to sell this house for 250000 You see what you can get above that? Um, I could make a lot more money. And I know that because I've seen wholesalers doing this constantly. And I've seen instances where in a wholesale transaction, a wholesaler is making basically a 50% finder's fee, way more than the 6% that sellers would have paid had they just used me to, to list their home. So I, I think that that is uh, a, some very important background. Now, uh, to tease this out further, now the question is, well, why has the standard 6% stayed 6% for so long? That is really the strongest argument um, for this being an anti-competitive uh, type of environment is that there has just been, there hasn't been a, a change in the system and it just seems like, well, obviously there's got to be some kind of a conspiracy happening. Here's the way I see it. I've already said I don't think there's a conspiracy. I think the free market determined that number. It was a number that worked for buyers, sellers, and realtors for decades and kept everyone happy. There's no conspiring between brokers to keep that number at 6% any more than Pepsi and Coke keeping their prices similar to each other is a conspiracy. I mean, it's very simple. Pepsi can just see what Coke's prices are and Coke can see what Pepsi's prices are and they can just determine what people are willing to pay just on the basis of what they're paying the competition. Um, and so on that basis, you typically see Pepsi and Coke have pretty similar prices because they're a similar product and they can simply keep their prices similar and that's that. Same thing for gas. You shop you shop at different gas stations. They have different pricing, obviously, but the pricing is not that different, right? At the end of the day, you're not going to find one gas station that's 20% cheaper than another one unless, you know, perhaps like Costco or Sam's Club or something like that might be a very rare exception. But generally speaking, they're all looking at each other's gas prices and and essentially determining what price they are going to do on the basis of what everyone else is doing. Obviously, there's other factors um, like like the price of crude and supply and demand, all these different things that, uh, that factor into all of that that uh, I am not particularly knowledgeable about. So I'm not even going to pretend like I know what's happening uh, when it comes to that. But just from the standpoint of take a snapshot of what all of the... Uh, uh, gas stations are doing, they're looking at each other's prices and uh, determining their prices uh, off of the competition. And this is literally what everyone does, right? Every single store does this. I used to own a frozen yogurt shop. I had to look at, okay, what are the other frozen yogurt shops selling frozen yogurt for? Uh, because usually you're not able to sell for dramatically more than the competition unless you offer a product that is dramatically better than the competition. Okay, uh, I went on a little bit of a tangent that I didn't plan to go on there. Um, so let's let's just rein this back in. Let's talk about a little more history, right? Let's keep this history lesson going. The idea of buyer agents 
didn't even exist until a few decades ago. I don't know exactly when the concept of the buyer agent was birthed. It was a few decades ago. Uh, and prior to that, there were only listing agents, only, only agents that listed homes and sold homes. But the market determined that buyers, they wanted someone on their side. They didn't just want to work with the agent who represented the seller. And so buyer agency was created. But the original idea, which makes a ton of sense, was that if the listing agent only marketed the home but didn't bring the buyer, they shouldn't get the full commission. They should share the commission. And so the idea of splitting or sharing the commission uh, for the, the sale of the home with the buyer's agent was then formed. And so that's how we have the system today where the seller essentially compensates both the listing agent and the buyer's agent. That is the history behind, uh, roughly speaking, how that all happened. Obviously, I'm simplifying a, a lot of things here. Um, I, I don't want uh, some kind of uh, real estate history buff to, to get on me and say that, you know, hey, you left out this detail, that detail. I'm leaving out a lot of details, um, but I I'm, I'm feel like I'm presenting this issue honestly. This is roughly how this all, this whole system of real estate commissions came about. Now, we don't know what the aftermath of these lawsuits will be, but there's a good chance at some point down the road that these lawsuits will completely eliminate buyer agents and, and literally dial back the clock several decades to when we didn't have buyer agents anymore. Now, don't worry. It's not happening this year. It's probably not happening next year, but it could very well happen before the end of this decade. Now, here's something interesting that I learned through all of this that I never knew. Only about a third of the states in the U.S. have actual buyer agency contracts. South Carolina, uh, if you ever bought a house in South Carolina, you know that South Carolina is one of them. And our contract between the buyer client and the buyer agent specifies the amount of competition that the buyer agent will get paid. And it specifies that if the full commission cannot be paid out of the transaction, uh, i.e. paid by the seller in one way or another or paid by the listing brokerage in one way or, or another, then the buyer is responsible to pay for the commission amount that's specified in the contract. So every time I pick up a new buyer client, I explain this to them and they have to assume that they are going to pay my commission, although I will obviously do my best for them to have to pay as little of it as possible. And the vast majority of the time, my buyer clients don't end up paying me anything, but there are exceptions. And quite frankly, the only times I've had people get upset about the fact that they are having to pay me as their buyer agents is a very niche situation I've had happened more than one time, unfortunately, which is where I'm dealing with uh, adults in their mid-20s uh, who are looking to buy their first home. And after they've gone through the entire process of looking at a bunch of homes, you know, maybe making multiple offers, who knows, then their parents get involved at the very end and tell their children that they shouldn't be paying me anything. Um, even though the parents have no clue what I've done to help out their kids up to that point. That's the only time I've run into uh, in, into people being upset that they have to compensate me. Most of the time um, when my clients, when my buyer clients are having to pay a portion of my commission, which again is pretty rare because usually we can get it paid out of the transaction in some way. Um, 
but most of the time they're they even express that they're very happy to pay that that they know that they got good value for uh, for my services and and they are not upset at all that they're having to compensate me for that but i digress okay here's the important detail for buyer agents ultimately to be able to justify their cost they have to bring value okay right seems obvious it does not appear obvious to a lot of agents right now who are freaking out about this case. Um, and so, yeah, in the aftermath of the Sitzer Burnett case, I've heard and seen a lot of people make the argument, um, non-agents, just random people in the public, make the argument that they don't need to pay a buyer agent. They just need to get into a house and then have an attorney write up a contract, and that's that. Easy peasy. I don't need an agent. I can I can handle everything else myself. And and I'm sure and and I know that there are people out there that are like that. People that have, you know, bought five, six, seven homes and have, you know, done so recently, understand the process, um, have go-to people. Um, you know, maybe they're a contractor, so so they don't need the help of 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 an inspector, all these different things. But the vast majority of people I communicate with need someone on their side representing their interests and helping them with the process, um, not just of buying the house, but often helping with things well after the house is closed. I'm constantly, I, I mean, multiple times this week, I've had clients from years ago reach out to me for help with something with a closing that we had, again, years ago. You know, as simple as asking for uh, contractor recommendations to way more complex, like trying to figure out, okay, I've got a mobile home here that um, that needs to be moved off, off this property that I bought, um, and I don't have the title for the mobile home anymore, and I can't figure out what to do, and the DMV can't, you know, isn't sure uh, what needs to happen, uh, and the county is directing me to the DMV, and the DMV is directing me to the county, blah, 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 blah. Um, these are the types of things that happen well after closing, that uh, that a good realtor ends up having to do. And I don't get paid for helping people after closings, but I consider that part of what I was paid at the beginning, and I'm happy to do that. I'm always here for my clients well after they close on a house because I consider clients, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I consider my clients my friends, right? They're not just people that I extract money out of and then say, okay, we're done, never gonna talk again. That would be bad business, but it's also just not what I would want, okay? Um, now, I think it's also important to understand that the home buying process is not what it was 30 years ago. And this is this is where I do get irritated sometimes when those parents get involved and it's like the last real estate transaction they did was like 20 or 30 years ago. And it's like, you have no idea what the market is like now. The market isn't the same as it was even four years ago. If you bought a house four years ago, you have no idea what the market is like right now based on that four-year uh, ago experience. Um, now, but particularly, you know, 30 years ago, it was very different. Before the internet, you know, opened up access to information, um, it was basically impossible uh, to find homes, to find listings without dealing with realtors. Uh, but talk to realtors who have been in the industry for 30 years, and you'll find that basically their entire job back then was connecting buyers with homes for sale, and the rest of the process was 
uh, uh, pretty pretty simple. I mean, they might not. <laughs> if you talk to someone, they might not say, "Oh yeah, it was pretty simple." It, it depends on who you talk to, right? They they might try to puff it up like like it was more complex. But trust me, I've talked to some of these realtors that have done it for years and years, and it was very simple. In some cases, they weren't even putting offers or contracts in writing. It's just verbal offer, verbal contract. Here we go. Get an attorney involved. Boom, it's done. But the home buying process is dramatically more complicated now than it was then. And so the realtor's role has shifted from merely a house finder into a general real estate expert. And for me to really help my clients, I have to know, I mean, just all sorts of things. The local market, the broader economy, local government, construction standards, uh, insurance, what's happening in taxes, uh, zoning codes, local builders, etc. I mean, I could, I could, I could go on for for probably ten minutes, uh, just rattling off just all these different things that that I need to have at least a basic understanding of in order to do this job well. In addition to that, I have to have a network of trusted professionals in a lot of other but closely uh, related worlds like lending, engineers, insurance agents, contractors, subcontractors, etc., etc. So where all this is going. Um, and and I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit here. I've been contemplating... Whoa, 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 whoa. Knocking my, uh, <laughs> knocking my microphone here around. Uh, this is what happens when I stand. I'm, I'm doing a lot more big uh, hand gestures, and I just smacked my mic. Um, okay, so one thing I've been contemplating in all of this is that I really need to better explain to potential clients potential buyer clients, what I do as a buyer's agent. Because a lot of people don't fully understand what they're potentially paying for when they hire a a realtor, a buyer's agent. So what I would like to do for the rest of this episode, if you guys will entertain me, is is to run this by you guys. Um, And I'd love feedback uh, in terms of, of if what I'm about to say, if it makes sense, if it resonates with you. I'd also love feedback if you hear this and you don't think it's a good representation of my service or value. Basically, any feedback on what I'm about to, to discuss would be great. I would really appreciate it. And here, here's what I'm going to discuss. These are some of the things that I think, and, and this is uh, still in progress. This is certainly no finished product. But as I'm trying to think through how to encapsulate my value in this post-Sitzer Burnett world, uh, because... Quite frankly, I see a world in which realtors will probably end up getting sued um, as part of all these class action suits, and I don't think that I deserve to be sued, but I also understand that sometimes things, uh, if, if I don't do my job of explaining my value and making sure that people understand what they're paying for, that is part of the complaint right now that's going around to people. So I try to list out some of the things that I think are what I offer as a buyer's agent. And again, I'd appreciate feedback if uh, if you guys are willing to listen to this and, and give me your thoughts. Uh, again, co- my contact information is always in the show notes for you to do that. All right. So here are some of the things that come to mind when I think about what my buyer clients are potentially paying for when they hire me as a realtor. First off, one thing I do that is like opposite HGTV, opposite what everyone thinks about realtors. Again, that I've referenced a podcast that I listened to recently about the Sister Burnett trial, and they 
propagated all these stereotypes about realtors that are just trying to extract as much money out of people as possible. I feel like I am the complete opposite of that. Um, and I will, and I frequently do, try to talk clients out of a deal if I feel like they're spending too much money on a property. And as a full-time realtor of seven years, I study the market every single day. I know what's fair or not for a property. I also study when I'm when I'm showing listings. I will study that listing in advance. I will actually prepare for it. I know a lot of realtors, they just show up. They don't, you know, they've not looked at anything with regard to the listing that they're about to show. Um, and admittedly, there are some times where, you know, if someone sends me a listing and it's like a same day kind of thing, they're like, hey, can we look at this? you know, later this afternoon, um, I might not have had time to study it. But if, assuming I do, um, I will study the listing in advance to see how it compares to others. Uh, and based on that information, I will make recommendations to my clients because I understand the market and, and I don't want them at the end of the day to overpay. Um, I'll also say, because I represent both buyers and sellers, I understand how the market works from both perspectives, right? I, and this gives me a massive leg up versus just straight up buyer's agents who never list homes. I cannot express to you enough. I look at contracts differently. I look at negotiations differently. I look at everything differently because I can see it from both perspectives. And if you've only ever been on one side of the table, you cannot do that. I'm sorry. I, and I'm saying this because there are a ton of of agents out there that are buyer agents only that never list any homes. There are some companies that they're structured that way where they have buyer's agents and then they have listing agents and they make it like it's it's an advantage. Here's a buyer agent specialist. Here's a listing specialist. It is not an advantage. It is just like, listen, you go to a chef and all the chef knows what to do is to work the grill versus a chef that knows the entire kitchen, what what do you think is going to be a better chef? It's really, really simple. Uh, all right. And so all that to say, that I, again, I w- went a lot longer than I thought I would on that point. I will, I know the market. I understand what's happening on a day-to-day basis from multiple perspectives. If a client is making a bad, in my opinion, a bad financial decision, I will let them know. Similarly, um, those of you that listen to the show a lot know that I used to be an insurance adjuster and I have uh, flipped houses and own rental properties now for roughly 10 years. And I can see major concerns with the home because of this experience that others don't. When I walk into a home that I'm potentially interested in buying myself, I don't do inspections. I don't you know, need to have contractors go through or anything like that. I just, I know what I'm seeing. I know what I'm seeing and uh and that's part of, of my experience that then I can bring to bear with my clients. And I will point out right away, if there are things that I see that are a concern, I'm going to point those things out right away to my clients. And many realtors see showings as an opportunity to determine if their clients like a house or not. For me, I take it a step further. I'm not just trying to help my client determine if they like a house or not although I I do try to be a sounding board in that way. Um, But I will also try to tell them, here's what you can expect after you close a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from from now. Here's some of the things that you might run into if you purchase this house. 
even if they really seem to like it, I'm going to give them those warnings. Um, that, you know, I, I could give a gazillion examples of this, but one of my favorite, um, and, and again, differentiating myself from other realtors, there was, and I've given this example before, but it was years ago uh, on the show, so I apologize if, if you've been listening for years and you remember this. But there was one time with a client, I pulled up to a house, and we were actually all in the same vehicle. And I actually gasped when I pulled up. It, the, the, so the house was actually on a, a downward slope. So the uh, it was below the street was where the house was located. So steep driveway down to the house. But from street level, you could see the entire roof. And I could see unbelievable hail damage on the roof. And again, I used to be an insurance adjuster. I'm sensitive to that type of thing. I've been on a bunch of roofs. I've helped people uh, get hail damaged roofs replaced. For many years, I, I did that. And um, and so I, I called the listing agent. I was like, are you aware that there is really, really bad hail damage on your listing. And she was just like, oh, no, I, I didn't know that. But it's okay, because we already have multiple full price offers anyway. And I was just like, well, <laughs> not going to recommend this house to my clients. And so um, they, we, we still looked at it, obviously, because we were there. Um, but I talked them out of that because it was like, this roof is not insurable. Do you want to buy a house with a roof that if you have issues, your insurance is going to say, sorry, that's pre-existing damage. You have to replace the whole thing yourself and fix any interior damages that were caused. No, nobody nobody wants that. Nobody should be dealing with that when they're buying a house. So that's some of the value that I provide. Here's a few more things. Off-market, or I shouldn't say off-market necessarily, but at least off-MLS deals. Okay, some of these are off-market deals. I have a lot of contacts in the off-market world. Uh, with investor clients and the like, wholesalers and the like, um, that are presenting off-market deals that if I see one that matches the client, uh, then I will let them know. But also, my company, which has several hundred agents, we have brokerage-exclusive listings. And in South Carolina, we have the option for listing on MLS or listing brokerage-exclusive. If they're brokerage-exclusive, you cannot find them anywhere unless you're working with an agent that works for that brokerage. And the way it's it's structured, at least the way I understand it, um, it it's, it's not just for your specific office, it's for your uh, sister offices as well. So again, in my case, hundreds of agents that we have with C. Dan Joyner Realtors. And let me see, I, I will tell you right, at, right now, right at this moment, how many off, mar- off MLS properties that we have that are uh, listed with brokerage exclusive listing agreements. We have our own special internal website where we can see this. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Okay, so that might not sound like very much, but this is an incredibly low inventory environment. And so for me to potentially be able to deliver you something that's off MLS um, is of huge value. Um, another thing that I offer is obviously knowledge of local builders, small and large local builders and house flippers. And this is something that's that's I feel like is really valuable right now, particularly, again, in this low inventory environment. A lot of people buying new construction and people ask me, what do you think about this builder? What has been your experience with this builder? And I can give an educated opinion on builders and house flippers based on 
uh, based on my knowledge, and, and that's something that not everyone can provide in this market. Obviously, I have access to my network of inspectors, contractors, appraisers, engineers, etc. Um, and this is a, a very deep network, right? I mean, do you need a plumber? I've got a plumber. Do you need an HVAC guy? I've got that. These are people that I've worked with in many cases for years, but I'm also constantly refining the list. If, if someone comes along, and, and this is one thing that really annoys me, a lot of realtors are really committed to uh, to people that they like. I ran into this with a um, warranty company uh, last year. I had a funny thing where I had a, actually this may have been two years ago. Uh, time flies when you're having fun, right? There's a warranty company that I had a really bad experience with. And I felt like it was worth telling other people in my company, which my company, C. Dan Journal Realtors, is a very good company with very professional realtors. Um, and, and I thought it would be helpful to let everyone know in a professional way, hey, I had this bad experience. Here's what happened. Just be aware uh, because it might help you with your clients. You, you might not want to use this, this home warranty company anymore. Well, guess what? I had a bunch of people respond to me, a bunch of these old crusty agents respond to me that they were unhappy uh, with my email that I sent out to the whole company because they have a close relationship with uh, with someone in, in that home warranty company. And uh, and, and the, the funniest part was that some people said, please unsubscribe me to this thread. <laughs> it's just like, I, I sent out the email to the whole company. I can't unsubscribe you. You need to, you know, shut off your email or something. Um but, but that blew my mind. Guess what? You know what's hilarious? About six months later, the person that, that they all had this relationship, she left the home warranty company. And so all of this angst that these people had, it turns out, I don't, I don't even know why she left the company, but I have a hunch it had to, something to do with the frustrations that I had with that company. So really, really funny. Um, I don't just uh, stick with someone because I've always stuck with them. I'm constantly refining my network of, of these uh, various vendors that I'm working with. And by the way, before I became a realtor, literally my job was uh, was maintaining the network of vendors that the company that I work for worked with. We called them affiliates. And, um, and so this is literally something I've done even well before I became a realtor. Um, and I feel like it's it's something I'm good at. I, I know how to work with good people, and that's what uh, that's one thing I really pride myself on. Um, another uh, another point that I think is an important point, right? I have a lot of people who can fill in for me in a pinch. If I get sick, you want to look at a house, you're not stuck, right? I can substitute someone else to show that house for you. Um, now, are they going to do the showing the same way that I would? No, obviously. Um, but they can, uh, at the very least, do the bare minimum, and then even if I'm sick, I'm going to, um, you know, help you with the paperwork, help you with with uh, strategy with your strategies for trying to get under contract, all these different things. Um, I, you know, I've had before seizures where I'm in the hospital and can barely think. People are texting me. I'm in my hospital bed, texting and and responding to people, getting stuff done. I've had closings happen while I'm in a hospital bed. I mean, let me tell you, um, I can work this job remotely and I have processes in place to do it. If you're interviewing realtors, it's a great question to ask. What is your process for when you're on vacation? What is your process for when you're sick? What do you do to, to handle things? 
um, very revealing answers that you'll get. Um, I'll mention as well, another part of my value is access to me 365 days a year. I even, this is this is one of the funny things. So um, earlier this year, I went out to California. We did kind of a national parks tour. And I knew that there would be some times where I wouldn't have great cell phone receptions. So I bought a satellite device that literally allows me to send satellite text messages when I don't have cell phone reception. I gave out you know that number to a bunch of clients that um, that potentially would need to reach out to me while I was gone. I am accessible. It doesn't matter where I am. I could be anywhere in the world. Um, I am accessible 365 days a year. Now, next year is leap year. So I don't know. Should I be saying 366 days a year? Maybe I'll just take off leap year. I, I don't know. Um, but regardless, I'm, I'm jesting, obviously. I am as accessible a realtor as you can find. And, and I, I'll mention as well, I work around my client's schedule, not vice versa. I... <laughs> I had a situation a few years ago where I was in a different community that had a community pool. And I get a message. I'm at the pool with my family. I get a message uh, from uh, from someone saying that, hey, I just countered an offer that you sent earlier today. Um, well, it ends up being like a really intense thing because it's a multiple offer situation. I don't even have time to like dry off and and go home. I have to do the entire thing there at the side of the pool. And I did, it's like nine o'clock PM because we were there like late until it, until it closed in the middle of the summer. It's like eight 30, nine o'clock PM. And I'm there at the side of the pool, like texting, like getting stuff done. Um, I I mean, I, I could, I could tell you guys a gazillion stories, me having to send DHL, uh, mailings from, uh, from Punta Cana, uh, to help out a client. Um, (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's it's just it's crazy, um, but I will I work around my client's schedule, not vice versa. You talk to some agents and and um, and they're like, you know, hey, from nine to six you can reach me. After six o'clock, I'm spending time with my family. On weekends, I'm spending time with my family, or or you know, maybe I take off every Monday. You know, if if you need something on Monday, I'll get back with you on Tuesday. All these different things. I think that's a bunch of bull. Right. We have realtors. We have a ton of flexibility in this job. And part of that comes with the fact that there is an an element of inflexibility baked in as well for us as realtors. And I just try to be as flexible with my clients as possible and work around their schedule. And I don't tell them, here's what my schedule is. Now you work with my schedule. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and, uh, and, And so that's I pride myself on that as well. Technology. I've just got a few more points here. Um, I have a full suite of technology I use for my clients if they want it. Every single thing in a real estate transaction can be done remotely if need be. I've had multiple real estate transactions over the years where the the buyer never even stepped foot into the house until after they closed. Um, And again, I can do it all. We can do it all remotely. I have the technology uh, to handle everything with you being in a different country, if, if you want to be. On the flip side, if people don't like that, and some people, you know, older folks or whatever the case may be, they might want to do everything in person, on paper, I will do that too, right? I'm not stuck to my technology, um, but I have the technology if people need it. As much technology as you could possibly want. Um, negotiating. Let's talk about negotiating for a second. Real estate negotiation is supremely personal because a real estate transaction is very personal. If I've had 
plenty of clients with sales backgrounds over the years make suggestions to me for how to negotiate this or how to negotiate that. And the real the reality of the situation is that a real estate negotiation is just different than negotiating in non-personal contexts. Now, there's obviously always going to be overlap uh, between good negotiation tactics. I'm not saying that. But in general, real estate negotiation is unique. And I take a very nimble and human approach that varies based on what I perceive from the other agent I'm dealing with. For instance, uh, and these are are both very simple examples, um, is it an agent that likes to text and will send a one-word response when I reach out to them? Well, I'm going to keep my thoughts abbreviated and make sure that that I don't overwhelm them with information that they're not going to respond to. On the flip side, is it an agent that's a verbal processor and I'm going to uh, get on the phone, uh, sorry, are they a verbal processor and they like to be on the phone a lot um, and, and they just like to, to talk through things, in that case, um, I'm going to get on the phone with them and talk to them for as long as they need in order for me to gain their trust. Now that's just high level. Um, and there's obviously much more that goes on behind the scenes in negotiating, but I'm not going to reveal all of my secrets to you guys in this podcast. Um, Another point I think that's easily forgotten. I have a great reputation uh, for saving contracts for falling through. I have saved so many deals and I'm not, I'm really not trying to brag here, um, but literally I have saved dozens of contracts over the years using creative problem solving. And, And here's the way it oftentimes happens. Agent will call me or, you know, some party to a transaction will call me and they'll say, we're backing out. We, we, this isn't going to work. This listing that you have, it needs too much work. We're backing out. And, um, and I have literally turned those conversations around and said, no, we can work through this. We can make it work. Now, if it's my client, my client wants to back out. I'm not going to try to talk my client out of it. I'm going to try to understand it. And if they're, if they want my input, I will give my input. But if they call me and they're just like, I'm backing out. I didn't sleep last night. We can't handle this. I'm not going to argue. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is when my client is good, but it's the other party that's upset, I'm going to, I have a great success rate of bringing that other party from off the ledge back into the transaction and getting the transaction saved. All right, last but not least, contract writing. I can tell by just reading a contract written by another realtor if they know what they're doing or not. And a lot of people think that, you know, the only important details in a contract are just like a few details. I did it again. Knocked over. I really apologize. I keep knocking over my uh, uh, my microphone here. I'm just going to put my hands in my pocket. Okay, here we go. Hands in my pockets. No more hand gestures. No more Irish hand gestures. Hand gestures. I can't even talk. Um, <laughs> um, okay, a lot of people think that, that there's really only a few important details, the price, closing date, you know, things of that nature in a contract, but really, those things are important, uh, but the, in my opinion, the devil is in the details, and what really makes a good contract are usually things that, that people just haven't even thought of. There's a lot of very creative things that you can put into contracts um, that make them uh, more attractive, particularly in a multiple offer situation. I also know how to write a contract to protect my clients in the maximum way possible. 
and and as we're looking at contracts or writing contracts or countering, I will discuss all of those things. Here's the pros and cons. Here's where you're putting more skin in the game, and here's why that might be advantageous. Or here's why I wouldn't recommend putting more skin in the game when it comes to this contract. Um, all these different things. So there you have it. Um, that is a, a list that I'm working on currently for explaining my value to clients. Obviously, I need to get, you know, this is all still formulating in my, in my mind how to verbalize this. And uh, so I'm a little bit long-winded at the moment, but if you're still listening, man, thank you. I really appreciate that uh, for those that are still listening. I would love to hear your feedback, what your thoughts are on that. Like I said, all feedback is good feedback. I will not be offended if you don't like something that I put in here. So please just let me know. Contact information in the show notes, like, review, subscribe, rate, all those good things with the show. And we will talk again next time.